and welcome to another episode of PR360, and I'm your host, Brett Deister, and as always, if you could please subscribe to PR360 on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more, and with me, we have Brad Phillips as our guest today, and he's the executive director at Throughline Group. And he's done public speaking events with presidential candidates, members of Congress, Olympic athletes, top CEO, directors of nonprofit organizations, head of government agencies. He's also done TED Talks. He's done a ton of different things, been on media as well. He's just a really good guest to have on this week. So welcome to the show, Brad. Hey, good to be with you, Brad. And as I ask all my guests, are you a coffee or tea drinker? So that's a divisive question to start an interview with. That might be one of the more difficult gotchas I've ever gotten. So I, I guess I would answer that by saying I'm definitely a coffee drinker, and I'm not quite sure what to make of that other warm brown liquid. Mm. Well, I'm of both because I like both, but you have to find really good tea to actually like tea. Yeah, once in a while in the winter. Here in New York, the uh, the winters get pretty cold, so occasionally on a winter night, a nice cup of tea. But other than that, it's coffee all the way around. I get you. I mean, coffee is the standard for us working people because it just gives us that hit of energy. Yeah, we at the house, we call it the nectar of the gods. Mm, I like that. And what are some of the rules or unwritten rules when working with the media? There are so many, but I think the one that creates the best mindset going into interviews, particularly because we work with so many people who are subject matter experts or technical experts, is that media opportunities should not be viewed as an opportunity to educate the audience. There's always going to be some education function in any interview that you do, but from my own experience, I was a producer for ABC News and for CNN. And when we would go out and interview somebody, there were a couple of things that could happen. If somebody was really good, we would take notes as we were interviewing them, but we would put bullets and stars next to things that we heard that they emphasized or that we thought were particularly interesting. And if they weren't very good, we would just walk away with 12 pages of notes. In the first case, we might not even watch the interview again. We would just pull those things that we heard during the interview that we put stars next to, and that's what made it into the piece. In the latter case, where we just took a bunch of notes because the spokesperson or the person we were interviewing wasn't particularly disciplined, we would go back to the newsroom and say, okay, so what do we want to use here? And the problem with that is that's where sometimes people will read the story when it comes out. They'll say, out of everything I said in that half-hour interview, why did they print that? The reason they printed it is because you said it and you viewed the interview probably as an opportunity to educate rather than what I advocate that interview should be an opportunity to prioritize the things that matter most to your audiences. So prioritize more than education is, I think, the first takeaway point, the unwritten rule that I give our clients when they're dealing with the media. Mm. So it seems like be compelling and also prioritize to actually get aired or viewed? Yeah, I think you hit on a really important point there, which is, I think sometimes people make an assumption that if you're so-called on message, you're therefore not giving reporters what they want, that you are just speaking or towing the company line. And the truth is that a 
spokesperson who's engaging, compelling, knows how to make their points in a concise manner are often exactly what reporters are looking like because that's exactly what they want in their news pieces. They want somebody who says something of meaning and substance in a colorful way as quickly as possible. And so I think sometimes there's this notion that the reporter and the spokesperson are diametrically opposed. What I find is the majority of the times what works for one party works perfectly for the other. Mm -hmm. And when you're working with clients, how do you prepare them for interviews, let's say in different types of mediums, like print, radio, podcast, or television, or maybe even live streaming now? The core of all of this is, what do you want to say? What, what are your messages? And I know that's basic, but what's interesting when we work with clients and we'll say, we'll ask a question that on the surface seems that simple. What are your top two or three messages on whatever topic you're going to be interviewed about? It's not that easy because most people working for any organization, if you say to them, what do you do? They could go on for probably days because they're experts in their field. They have so much they could say. And the process of winnowing that down, synthesizing a lot of different thoughts into two or three compelling ones is not nearly as easy as it sounds. So that's always the starting point. And then asking the question about how you could supplement those so they don't sound like corporate talking points, but rather that they sound, as you said a moment ago, engaging and compelling through case studies, examples, stories, through statistics that are counterintuitive and unexpected. So that's the starting point, regardless of medium for print, radio, podcast, television. Of course, if it's broadcast, suddenly elements of body language become much more important. It's surprising for many people to hear that body language also matters a lot for formats like this. Even when I'm doing an audio-only podcast, I'm usually standing and, and gesturing. There's all sorts of research that finds that that old idiom about you think quicker on your feet is true for most people. The use of gesture, for example, helps you with the word retrieval function, so it doesn't take you as long to find the words that you're looking for. So even if it's on the radio, even if it's a print interview over the phone, those body language elements are important. They're certainly even more important when it comes to, let's say, live or or tape television, where people are seeing it as well. And so we'll work with clients on everything from gesture and posture and voice. But the one thing I'd say on that is, I don't believe there's a single archetype or template for what a great spokesperson looks like. In order for anybody to be effective, you have to start with them. What do they do well? And if somebody is, let's say, quiet, a little bit more professorial in their tone, that's not necessarily a bad thing. People can be very engaging like that, just as somebody who's far more demonstrative could be effective while being appearing much more energetic. So you always have to start with who is that person and what are the qualities that are most engaging about them? The goal is to build from there and then minimize any distractions that might be getting in their way. Mm -hmm. And do you think since 2020, the pandemic has happened that media training has crossed over to their own companies live streaming because that's been coming really, really popular through 2020? Absolutely. There is certainly a need for people to be more familiar with the remote platforms, the WebEx, the Zooms of the world. And if somebody, let's say, working for an organization or a company is asked to do television, particularly in the large markets, if you're in LA, the local affiliates have the capacity either to have you come in studio or often send a camera to where you are. 
So the technical portion of that is all handled for you, particularly in the largest markets. Now, with the pandemic, people not only have to be thoughtful with their substance and conveying the right messages, but they are, in effect, their own technical managers and their own set designers. They have to think about what's in the background. They have to think about what message their physical appearance sends in the remote format. They have to think about the quality of their web connection, their webcam, the audio quality of their headset. So all of a sudden, even the people who have media experience are now having to take on these functions that typically would have been played by broadcast professionals in the past. Mm -hmm. And going back to reporters, is there any way to accurately spot or avoid reporters' tricks? I think I always like to start with, I don't like to assign motives to reporters. In other words, the question of why are they asking tough questions? Are they really intended to trick you or are they doing their job? And their job is to try to elicit the real information. And when clients are able to start framing it that way and understanding they're not for you or against you necessarily, but they are there to try to figure out, you know, if the two of us are having a conversation behind closed doors, let's say the two of us work for the same company, what reporters are really trying to tease out during an interview is, what is that thing those two guys were saying behind closed doors? Because they know, of course, that we're saying something in a slightly different way to a public audience that we might have said it behind closed doors. So that's often the motivation for them. I think the way to prepare for that is to anticipate in advance what are the most likely challenging questions that you would be asked. I always advocate that people do Google searches for themselves, for their companies, because you can assume that reporters are. I'll give you an example. I sat down with an executive from a bank, a CEO of a, of a multinational uh, consumer bank. And that executive's political donations were available online. He didn't realize that. And I had to go to like the ninth page on Google, but I was able suddenly to see his party affiliation, who he donated money to, because all of that's public record. And when I asked him those questions during a practice interview, he was completely thrown off guard. He had no idea those were publicly available. Had it not been a practice interview, had I been a reporter with Bloomberg or CNBC, he would have been like a deer in headlights when confronted with that question. So one of the best ways to prepare for those questions is just to know what's out there about you. I know, again, that sounds obvious. In many practical cases, I find it's not. Basically, Google yourself all the time before you go on an interview. Absolutely. And ask those around you, what are the toughest questions you would have for somebody in my industry? Knowing what you know about us, what are the weak spots? There's a phrase in politics, it's called a murder board. And the idea behind that is that the person, the political candidate, for example, will have a conference room full of people who are peppering the candidate with the most challenging, obnoxious, difficult questions they can think of, things that are realistic, not just gratuitous, but things that somebody with who might be a little bit more adversarial could ask. And to try to deal with those things in advance, uh, what I have found is the vast majority of the time, there are good answers out there for tough questions. It's very unusual for there to be a question that's so difficult to answer that you can't come up with an answer that is honest, credible, and, and comes across to the audience as it should, as, as genuine. Mm -hmm. And let's say you're in an interview and it seems like to the interviewee, the question is a little bit hostile towards them. How do you make it or shift it to become a good outcome 
for your client? One of the most important things that is to depersonalize the question. Reframe it in your mind as a neutral question rather than a hostile one. In other words, if, if as an example, if somebody were to say to a retailer or a manufacturer of a product, why is your product so darn expensive? That's the hostile version of the question. The neutral version of the question is, can you talk about how you price your products? When you answer the question, you're still answering the heart of the question. The heart of the question was about price. It was about uh, how you come up with the price point, but you're neutralizing the question in the way that you answer it. When you do that, you can take out the feeling that you should be on the defensive. You shouldn't. You probably have a credible answer about your company's pricing strategy and should be able to articulate it well. So that's what I would say to people. Don't feel like you have to be thrust into a defensive position just because you're asked a question. Just depersonalize it. Listen carefully for what the heart of the question really is, and that's what you should be answering the question. Basically, don't take anything too personally or don't take things too personally is a good rule for interview questions when you think they're hostile. Yeah, that's right. And it's particularly true in broadcast where viewers are watching in real time how you're responding to challenging or negative questions. They're forming opinions about you in a couple of different ways. One is what the actual message is that you're articulating, but the other is about how confident you are when you're articulating those words. Do you appear flustered by the question? Do you appear defensive when you're asked it? Or do you appear utterly confident? Not arrogant, but do you come across in such a way that the viewer would conclude, oh, that person's obviously given this topic some thought and they've answered it in a reasonable way. There must not be anything negative behind that. So particularly in broadcast, that need to depersonalize is important. And there are certainly circumstances where the tone of your response carries much more weight with the viewer than the actual words you use. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the nonverbal cues, given how much communication comes from nonverbal cues, how do you manage or train somebody to at least identify their own cues or at least understand what they're giving off to make it more positive than negative? Yes. First of all, you're getting to a question there that is really important for people to have some understanding about themselves and their own triggers. For example, some people might be triggered when somebody puts them on the defensive. And so they get very defensive in their response. Other people might be triggered by an insecurity that they feel that, like they have a classic case of the imposter syndrome. And when somebody asks them a really challenging question, that they feel like they're an imposter, like they haven't earned their right to be speaking about that topic or to be doing that interview. So it's important to know something about yourself and how you react to negative questions. And to try to, as we touched on an earlier answer, to try to reframe the nature of the question itself as something more neutral. And to try to flip it to something that almost, in some cases, literally forces people back in their chair when they're asked a tough question, for them either literally or metaphorically to lean forward and say either in words or in tone, I'm so glad you asked that question. One of the things I always try to do when there's a difficult question is assume there are other people in the audience who have that question. So the tone of the answer is, thanks so much. Thanks for asking that. I know other people have that same misperception, concern that you do. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk about that. That is such a better psychological way to approach those questions than, 
oh, damn, they really touched on a soft point there. Hope I can get out of this one. So it changes the tone of the answer. It changes the confidence with which you're able to deliver it. And so I think reading a question like understanding that a reporter's job is to kind of kick the tires a little bit and see if you're able to stand up to scrutiny. It's not to make you look bad. It's almost a gift. It's an opportunity that when you answer a challenging question well, you've shown how graceful you can be under pressure. And I think that does more to earn the audience's respect and confidence than simply answering easy questions well. So that mindset, too, of greeting challenging, hostile adversarial questions as a gift rather than seeing it as a threat is really important to the quality of your response. So what I'm hearing is that most media training is about training their mindset to be positive and not negative. It's a huge component of it that I'll give you an interesting example that I see a lot of times that I think this gives you a pretty good sense. So first, when we're dealing with challenging questions, I'll often ask a question, let's say it's a group of half a dozen executives around the table, and immediately they go into messaging mode. How should we message this? What should we say? And they start this debate. I usually let it go on for a while because it often leads to a useful place. But after a certain amount of time, I will cut in and say, you know, I have a non-disclosure agreement with you. So just for my own benefit, so I understand what's the real answer. And then they'll give me the real answer. And then my follow-up question often is, well, why don't you just say that? And everybody kind of has that aha moment of, oh, we've been working so hard to message this thing. Why haven't we done that? On the body language side, it's interesting that at the beginning of a session with a client, I'll often observe their nonverbals. They're charismatic, they're warm, they're demonstrative. And then the camera comes on for the practice interview and all of that goes away. They become stiff, the stereotypical talking head. And in both of those examples, it's kind of the same thing that's happening. They're losing who they really are. And so a lot of media training, yes, it's about techniques. It's about practice. It's about refining. But a lot of it is also remembering that the reason you are in life, wherever that is, whether you're a manager, a vice president, an executive, a, a politician, you've gotten there for a reason. And it's about reminding people that the things they bring are engaging and compelling, and they shouldn't lose that. They, they should retain it, sharpen it, but not lose it altogether. So yes, that is a large part of what this training is all about. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing media stuff, how do you, or what are the best ways to identify your target audience when you're going to the media? Like, do you f sit down and figure out who you're going after and then do the media training or do you do the media training and then figure it out? How does it work? It's usually the audience comes first and the messaging comes second. The complicating factor for virtually every company or organization is that they have multiple stakeholders. They're never really talking, occasionally, I don't want to say never, but most typically they're speaking to multiple audiences at once. And the challenge for them, but I think it's a really important challenge they should embrace, is figuring out who truly is the primary audience, who's secondary, who, who's tertiary. And once we identify that, what you'll often hear is our primary audience is the general public. That's useless. Because the general public could be a 14-year-old high school freshman or a 92-year-old retiree. So is the audience really both of those things equally? Probably not. So one exercise I like to do with clients is I start by apologizing that I know this is a falsely reductionist exercise. But I'll say to them, I want you to think about a target person. There's no right or wrong answer, just whatever pops in your head. It's a free association exercise. Is it a woman or a man? or non-binary. What is the age? Give me a number. 
where does this person live? What is this person's marital status? What's this person's profession? What does the person dress like? Give this person a name. It feels really weird to them when I ask them to do it. Let's say in the end they say, okay, my person is Irene. She's a 43-year-old. She lives in Orange County. She is an attorney. She's married with two kids. So it kind of fleshes out this character of Irene. Why is this important? Because so many times when the interview begins, the person who's speaking forgets that Irene is the person they're speaking to. They lapse into conversational mode with the reporter. And the reporter may be asking questions that are different from the questions Irene is interested in or ask them in a way that doesn't really talk to Irene's needs. And when you when you remember that you're speaking through the reporter to the audience, you're able to see the reporter as the conduit through which you reach Irene and not as an end to themselves. Mm-hmm. And more on that is when you figure that out, how do you deliver a message that is impactful to your target audience? I think one of the things that anybody working for an organization or a company really has, hopefully, some sense of who their audience is. And that process of identifying their Irene is really helpful. So that is one of the answers. But that said, ultimately, every message needs to be tested. And so one of the things I encourage clients to do before they finalize messages, because ultimately a message could sound great in a conference room, but when they take it out into the real world, it's not that they fall apart. Oftentimes what I see is, let's say, two of three messages work really well, and one of them is a little bit too soft, or something is missing. There are holes in it. My analogy is I'll call it the plane test. This, of course, assumes that people are flying, so we may need to use it as a metaphor during the pandemic era. But the idea of the plane test is that when the person on the plane sitting next to them asks them what they do for a living, It's an opportunity to test out some of the messages. When they go to a party, when they go to a social hour, now when they're doing a Zoom cocktail hour, if somebody who's a stranger asks them what they do, an aunt who isn't really familiar with your profession asks you what you do, treat it as a one-person focus group. Really take those opportunities, not just to make small talk, but to try out some of your messages. What you're going to find pretty quickly is some things are resonating more with others. Some things are going to lead to follow-up questions. Pay attention to those follow-up questions because they might inform things that are missing from your messaging that are more likely to really help your core target audience. So that's what I would say. I always joke with introverts who say that they dislike cocktail parties. I kind of say, okay, fine, then be selfish. Be selfish when you have to go to these social events that you don't enjoy and take advantage of the opportunity to road test your messaging before you make them final versions. Mm -hmm. And for basically citing data and sources, how can you make that compelling with the media? Because I know data can be kind of boring for a lot of people. How do you make that compelling when you're in an interview? I think the important thing is that we are drowning in data. We are drowning in statistics and media messages. I don't really probably need to make the case to anybody in your audience about just how much of an information fire hose is pointing at them at all times, whether through social or traditional media or other marketing channels. And the point of that is that a regular statistic is not likely to grab people's attention. So for numbers, statistics, data to grab attention to the degree that it's unusual, it's counterintuitive, it's unexpected, it's even better. And to contextualize data in really unexpected, interesting ways. So as an example, I'm going to make up some numbers here, but I know that a lot of municipalities, cities have put into effect 
plastic bag ban. So you go into the local convenience store or drug store, they're not allowed to give you plastic bags anymore. So there's a couple of ways you can talk about that. One is to say every single day, people in this city, people in this county use and discard a plastic bag that they use only once 120,000 times. So 120,000 plastic bags used once, thrown in the trash, sits a landfill for the next century. Or you could say, if you were to stretch out the number of plastic bags that we use here in this city every single month, only once, and then throw away, it would stretch from here in Orange County all the way to the Statue of Liberty and back again every single day. So that's a more colorful, more memorable example. And so a lot of times it's start with the raw data point and then figure out how to bring it to life in a way that it becomes a little bit more either colorful or unexpected. Mm-hmm. And fun question for you. If you could media train anybody in history, who would you train? Oh, boy. That is an interesting question. If I could train anybody in history, who would I train? No, the answer that comes to mind is, and I don't know that it's a specific person, but I think the thing that I would almost offer to the people that I feel most for, you see these social media gaps, let's call them. And they're not the necessarily the, uh, the, the president or a member of Congress. It's someone who's under the radar, maybe somebody in a local a state off, elected office, somebody who may be known lo- locally, but doesn't have a national stage. But they do or say something that creates this viral moment. And suddenly, not only does everybody in the United States know who they are, because they're cluttering their Facebook feeds for the next three days with clips of their viral gaffe, but have gone global. I think it's those people I'd want to work with. And there's something I call the seven second stray. It's this idea that if you're on message for 59 minutes and 53 seconds of an hour long interview, and for seven seconds, you say something flip, sarcastic, or otherwise off your message, almost always, that's what the media is going to use. And to really help people understand that in this age where the lines about what's a reporter, who's the media, are essentially a race, anybody with a cell phone is a reporter. And so that embarrassing seven seconds that you say, that is even thoughtless, that you mean as a throwaway, that the moment that it comes out of your mouth, you almost recognize it and begin to regret it. The people in history I'd like to work with are the people who genuinely were well-intentioned, said something in a sloppy way, but unfortunately had their lives in a meaningful way defined by that one moment. All right. Any final thoughts for our listeners? I think the final point I would make is just remember the point I made earlier about the importance of starting with you. One of the biggest things I see when we do, let's say, public speaking trainings is that idea that people are great at the table when they're just making small talk and then frozen or only bringing a portion of the best qualities when they get in front of a room. And so much of the time when I have conversations with clients about, well, how come I saw a different version of you in front of the room than I did at the table? They'll tell me a story about somebody in their past, a parent, a coach, a teacher, a previous boss, who told them they didn't like something they were doing and that they should do it differently. And the truth is the feedback that person gave them is often wrong. Sometimes it's something like, don't gesture. Well, all the research we know about gesturing shows that an appropriate use of gesture can help both the speaker and the audience. So to tell somebody that that piece of advice they got in the past was counterproductive. It's, it's making their better qualities disappear. 
it leads to an immediate improvement in their performance and maybe just as importantly in their level of confidence. And so if there's a final word I'd leave your audience with, it would be start with you and go from there. All right. You heard it from Brad. Start with you. So it's all about you on that regard. Anyways, thank you, Brad, for joining PR360 this week. It's really a pleasure to join you, Brad. Thanks very much. And thank you for listening to PR360. As always, please subscribe to PR360 on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And join us next week as we talk to another great thought leader in the PR industry. All right, guys, stay safe, get outside, enjoy life, and see you next week. Later.